I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. As we come to the pinnacle of a worship service where we humble ourselves before the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 10. And in a moment, we will be looking at verses 5 through 15. But before we do, may I just review a bit for you. Those of you that have been with us know that over the past several weeks, we have been examining the 11 men that Jesus shaped. There were 12 in with the apostles, but one, as you know, was a traitor. And we've been confronted with the way that the Lord graciously molded plain and ordinary men, men that were fraught with all kinds of faults and foibles and transformed them into valiant warriors of the kingdom as they were empowered by his Holy Spirit and they were used mightily for his glory. And certainly this gives us all hope. At least I hope it does. It's a time of encouragement when we look into the word and we see how God has shaped those that have gone on before us. Sometimes it is easy to become discouraged. And over this week, there have been several of you that have been discouraged for various reasons. And sometimes it is easy to forget who we really are in Christ. It's easy to forget that as believers, we are the ones that have been called out, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the church. The word of God says that we are the elect of God. We are the chosen generation. The word tells us that we are children of light. We are sons and daughters of the living God, sons and daughters of the kingdom. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We are heirs of the grace of life. We have been made heirs of promise. We are a holy people, a royal priesthood. We are called vessels of honor. We are called the redeemed of the Lord and on and on it goes. And folks, you should never let those truths escape the presence of your heart, especially when you become discouraged. Because as believers, we also have the privilege, the Bible says, of abiding in Christ. We are the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells. We are told that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. We have access to God through Christ we know that Christ is our mediator with the Father. Again, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He intercedes for us. The Bible says that no one can bring a charge against the elect and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when you begin to think through all that we really are in Christ, there is no room for discouragement. We are all part of his glorious body, the church. And we have all been supernaturally gifted to put his glory on display within the body and within the world in which we live. And frankly, the benefits of our salvation are staggering. What a glorious gift. What a blessed hope. In fact, it's one in which Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But sadly, not all Christians can identify with this great rejoicing. Not all Christians identify with this inexpressible joy. 
And for some, it's because they've lost sight of who they really are in Christ. But then for others, they are like those believers that Paul described in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. Some of them are unruly. They are the undisciplined, the lazy, the Christian couch potatoes that never really exercise their faith. Some are the faint hearted, he calls them. Those that are timid and easily discouraged and full of fear and doubt, always running for cover. And then there are the weak, those that are spiritually immature and constantly struggling with life dominating sins. They lack moral courage. They're easily tempted. They have very little discernment. But then there are others who are just simply sheep without a shepherd. Those that are confused as to what they are supposed to do as a Christian. Those that are ignorant many times of what God would have for them in their spiritual life. For many, I've found that they are those that are victims of what we might call churchianity. I dealt with several of them this week on the phone and through emails. Those that are floating along in their Christian life with no real purpose no real understanding of who they are in Christ and what they should be doing for God and his glory. But the good news is this. Today's text brings great clarity to this very issue. A very practical portion of scripture. And today, dear friends, we will begin to see much more clearly what are the real essentials of Christian ministry. What is the divine model for Christian service? You might put it this way, we're going to learn what God's job description is for us, at least at some level, and what are the Lord's expectations. Now, while this text is by no means exhaustive on this topic, it certainly provides for us the essential elements of Christian service. That's why I have entitled this message this morning, God's Model for Ministry. And today we will see the at least the skeleton of this model and certainly all of the rest of the New Testament puts much more muscle, and much more meat on the bones. So in verses 5 through 15, we see Jesus giving ministry instructions to the 12 apostles, and we will glean some helpful insight, therefore, into Jesus' model for ministry for all of us. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 5. Matthew chapter 10. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey. Or even two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And? Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In this text, I would like to have you notice four basic principles that I believe are foundational for Christian service, four crucial categories that will help us organize our efforts as believers, and certainly categories that will help clarify God's expectations of us. Let me give them to you. First of all, we need to know God's mission. Secondly, we need to know God's message. Thirdly, we need to know God's method. And finally, know his mandate. Know his mission, his message, his method, and his mandate. All M's easy to remember. Let me ask you, when you think about it, with respect to God's mission, can you define your mission as a Christian? Do you really know what your calling is, what God really has for you right now at this stage in your life? Or do you just kind of float along, just kind of show up at church and kind of do the Christian thing, whatever that is? Do you know God's message? Can you clearly and precisely articulate God's message, not only to the lost, but also to other fellow believers, your husband, your wife, your children, and so on? What would be the core of that message? Do you know God's method? In other words, do you understand the basic principles of Christian ministry? Would you be able to at least at some level Articulate those. What about God's mandate? Do you have any idea what to do when people clearly reject God's message? Well, as we continue on in Matthew, we're going to see much more of the Lord's private ministry with the twelve. And we will see as we go on the wonderful principle that concentration produces multiplication as As you invest yourself deeply in a few, that begins to multiply over time. So we will learn much about these categories of ministry as we, together with the twelve, sit at the feet of Jesus and learn his model for ministry. First of all, notice in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. The term instructing is very important. It gives us the idea in the original language of someone giving binding orders as a superior officer would do to a soldier. These are not mere suggestions, dear friends. These are binding, absolute requirements. The Lord expects his people to be obedient as they go out, certainly in this case with the twelve. And they needed this because this was their first assignment, their first missionary endeavor. Probably lasted a few weeks. We're not real sure, but certainly they needed clear and binding instructions. They've never done this before. All they had seen were the itinerant false teachers that were doing all kinds of things very contrary to what the Lord was going to ask them to do, as you will see. Jesus knew that they needed these orders to win souls to Christ and also to protect them from temptations that would render them ineffective and disqualified. Now, some will say, well, you know, this really isn't applicable to me. I mean, I'm not an apostle. Moreover, I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. Well, true. Not all are called to be those things. But, dear friends, every believer is called to fulfill 
the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. And though your individual gifts and perhaps your individual calling within the context of ministry may vary, every believer has been given binding instructions regarding their role in evangelizing sinners and in equipping the saints and certainly even in exalting the Savior. So let's examine what these binding instructions would look like. First of all, we must know God's message I mean, God's mission, excuse me, beginning at the end of verse five through verse six. He says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what he was telling the apostles is, first of all, man, I want you to go to the Jews, not the non-Jews, just to the Jews. Now, mind you, this was a temporary mission, a temporary focus that would later be broadened to include everyone. But the apostles were Jews. They understood Judaism. They would have therefore had a natural understanding, a natural entree into that culture. And this being their first assignment, they needed to be familiar with the people to whom they were going to minister. Moreover, the Jews biblically have always been God's chosen people. Specifically, they were called to be a witness nation. For example, in Isaiah 42 and verse six, we read, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations to bring salvation to the end of the earth. And ultimately, this will come to fruition during the millennial kingdom. But also, it's important for you to understand that had they gone to the Gentiles first, certainly the Jews would have resented them later on. And never even considered their message, probably, because they would have thought, well, these are just some more pagans coming along with some crazy ideas. So he says to them, first, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, later on, again, the target for evangelism was broadened. In fact, we know the Apostle Paul was specifically commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. But, dear friends, here's the principle that we need to glean from this. As you think about it, every soldier must know his mission, his objective, his target. And while most Christians understand their calling in general to witness for Christ, I have found that many are clueless with respect to a specific mission in their ministry. Many times they are unfocused, undefined. They have a scattered kind of shotgun approach. Let's just spray our efforts everywhere and hope we hit something. And therefore, it's easy to become distracted by competing needs and convincing voices and start chasing after all kinds of needs. And they are myriad, are they not? But what we need is a clear understanding of our calling and our gifting to a certain task within the body. And that can change from time to time. But without a clear objective in ministry that flows out of your specific calling and your specific giftedness, you will never be effective. You will be like a large body of water that could meander across uh, the prairie and basically be spread so thin that you're not effective. But if you take that same amount of water and you harness it and you put it within the walls of a canyon, it is a force to be reckoned with. Because it is focused. Now, it's okay certainly to do many things within the church. And gradually, 
your ministry will be more defined and you will begin to see more of where you really need to serve. You will begin to see more of what your mission is. But you really need to ask yourself just some of the basic questions. I wonder what my real target audience is. Is is it youth? Is it is it younger women? Is it adults? Is it maybe some ethnic groups? Uh, Are you targeting certain neighbors? What is it? And many times Christians really never answer those questions. And therefore, we do not have a clear sense of our mission. And as a footnote, some might say, well, you know what, Pastor, I don't even know what my gift is. How do I find out what my gift is? Simple. Get involved in the church and it'll become obvious. By the way, your gifts are for others to determine, not you necessarily. Um, Others need to be blessed by your gift. And sometimes people just tolerate what you think your gift may be. And keep in mind, by the way, that gifts, if you look at them biblically, are categorized in terms of basically two big categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And as you get involved in the church, you will begin to see your gift developed or your gifts as the case may be. And it's important for you to remember that just because you like to serve in some specific capacity, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is your gift. I've known men, for example, who just love to preach. And even women who love to preach and or teach. And they just know that that's what their gift is. Because after all, mama and daddy have told them so and the rest of the family think they're great. But other discerning saints would rather pass a kidney stone than endure them. And so it's really important that we let other people determine what our gifts are, and that helps us define our ministry. Now, it is true that sometimes we must function outside the realm of our giftedness, and we must have a broad range of our mission within a church, especially a small church. Many of you understand what that's like. And that's okay until others may or until the Lord may raise up someone that's more gifted or more qualified. And then we need to humbly step aside and find that place where we really are suited to serve. So the Lord gave precise and binding instructions with respect to the apostles mission. And they had a specific objective. They had a focused ministry and therefore a focused ministry, dear friends, will be a powerful ministry. Not only must we recognize God's specific and binding mission for us, but secondly, we must know God's message. Notice verse 7. He says, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want you to hear this. Notice that he did not give them a message of social and political reform. It was not a message that God has a wonderful plan for your life. He did not say, go and tell them how to become prosperous or how to somehow conquer the problems in your life through the power of positive thinking. He didn't go to them and say, here's how you can have healing in your marriage or even healing in your physical body. Nor did he say, go to them and help them learn how to discover the purpose driven life. But rather, he said, preach the kingdom. And obviously, all that is included within that glorious concept. In other words, he says to them, go and tell them about the kingdom of God. By the way, as you read through Scripture, and I'll give you just a few examples, 
It is also called the kingdom of God and Christ in Ephesians 5, 5. In 2 Peter 1, 11, it's called the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in other words, the Lord is saying, go and tell them about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Go and tell them that the Messiah is here. Tell them that the King of Kings has arrived. You know, I'm captivated by this glorious concept of the kingdom of God. May I remind you, dear friends, that the kingdom is a concept that describes the divine authority given by the father to the son to exercise his rule in the hearts of men in a spiritual domain. And someday, as we study scripture, we will see that there will be an eschatological consummation of that kingdom. In other words, eventually, at the end of redemptive history, that kingdom will manifest itself as the prophecies have declared. And it will be known as the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ returns to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, as he comes in power and in great glory, and he puts all enemies under his feet and returns the kingdom back to the Father, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And at the same time, we must understand that Satan's kingdom will be destroyed. But between now and then, God reigns in the hearts of twice-born saints, those who in turn will manifest the glory of God through, as Romans 14, 17 says, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And friends, this glorious manifestation of his lordship, as people see that in our lives, is a preview of coming attractions in the age to come, a foretaste of future messianic blessing to the redeemed. And so Jesus is telling them, go and tell them of the supernatural rule, the kingdom of God. Tell them that we have invaded the kingdom of Satan. Tell them that the kingdom of God has come and it delivers men from the bondage of satanic darkness. Tell them that, tell them how to inherit the kingdom of God. Tell them how to pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, beloved, this is to be our message. Certainly not in all that detail, but the basics needs to be seen within the context of Jesus as king. So when we come to people, our message needs to be something on this order for them to understand that God is our creator and that we are our, we are the creature and that God is holy and that we are not. And that because of sin, there is a huge chasm that cannot be bridged. We cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. But because of his infinite love for us, he provided a savior. He provided a way for man to be reconciled back to God. And that is certainly Jesus Christ. We, they need to understand that every sin must be punished and we can either allow that punishment to fall upon the back of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we can pay eternally for that sin ourselves. This is the message of the cross of the cross. And dear friends, if I can put it this way, we must be careful when we present the message of the kingdom that it's not diluted with all the garbage that's out there. 
And I won't get into that. We've talked to that. We've talked about that in many ways. But friends, we must preach the gospel of the kingdom of Christ with sufficient clarity and precision that men will either believe it or they will reject it. There should be no confusion about what the message is. You ask most Christians today, what is a Christian? And you get all manner of answers. You ask them, what is the gospel of Christ or the kingdom of Christ or what is really the gospel? And you hear all kinds of things. But folks, our message needs to be precise. It needs to be clear, whether it's in the barbershop or the coffee shop, whether it's in the pulpit or it's in the park. Don't water it down. Jesus cut straight to the chase and he said, preach to them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Imagine that message, by the way, in a seeker sensitive church. Beloved, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto what? Unto salvation. And so we need to unleash, unleash its truth upon sinners with clarity and precision and then watch what God will do. But I want you to notice something else to confirm their apostolic authority as divine emissaries of the king. He empowered them with supernatural abilities. He said, I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. The Apostle Paul tells us that these were the signs of a true apostle, by the way, in Second Corinthians 12, 12 signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, these miracles gave them the necessary supernatural credentials to authenticate their message and to confirm their claim that indeed they were representatives of the Messiah King. And these miracles demonstrated the power and the love of God, a foretaste of the coming messianic kingdom. But I also want you to notice that they were miracles of compassion, not merely demonstrations of supernatural power. He didn't have them go out and do disappearing acts or turn, you know, camels into people or Pharisees into pigs or anything like that. But they were miracles of mercy, miracles of compassion that touched people where they lived. Now, it's also important for you to remember that after the apostles work was finished, these sign gifts were terminated despite the imaginary claims to the contrary. No one is able today to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers or to cast out demons. By the way, we see the cessation of these miracles even by the end of Paul's third missionary journey. That's why the sign gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are different than those in Romans 12. The miraculous gifts are not included in Romans 12 because by that time, which was about a year and a half later, they were no longer in service. Now, you might ask, how can we therefore discern true pastors and teachers today without supernatural miracles? Well, the answer is quite simple. You measure them by their character, by their conduct and by their creed. You measure them against the infallible record of the word of God. Their character needs to be one of Christ-like humility, of love, of wisdom and power. Their conduct needs to be one that is exemplary of godliness, obedience to the scripture. Their creed must be that they preach sound doctrine. John MacArthur has addressed this well, and I quote, The mark of divine power still validates the work of those God sends out to do his will, but in less dramatic ways. 
The ministry of the true servant of Christ is characterized by God's power in redeeming lives, giving divine spiritual understanding and bringing spiritual growth through the faithful witness, even of the least gifted believer. The gospel has unleashed power to raise the spiritually dead to life and to shatter the work of demons and of Satan himself, end quote. Now, because of a couple of issues that have arisen even in this area and within this church, I want to digress for a moment. There are numerous marks of a false teacher, and some have asked about what these marks are with respect to special revelations and especially the issue of casting out demons and exorcism. It's interesting that these marks of false teachers and there are numerous places where they are discussed, but certainly Second Peter 2 and the little epistle of Jude parallel really passages really expose some of the phony claims that these people will use to deceive naive followers into believing that somehow they have supernatural powers to get people to follow them. Many of them will certainly claim special revelation. They will say, oh, God has spoken to me and here's what he's told me to tell you. Jude verse eight calls them dreamers. Enupnea zomenai, a real strange Greek term and very rarely used, but it's a term that indicates, especially in the Jude eight context, somebody with an overactive imagination, somebody that's going to claim that they are seeing things or seeing visions or that God is somehow directly communicating with them. And therefore, what's going on is they're conjuring up what they want to believe, not that which is actually true or what God has determined. And the term also refers to a demonically inspired vision or dream. And it's interesting that every founder of cults and false religions claims some special revelation or many of them have claimed some special relationship with an angelic messenger. For example, if you look at Muhammad, he tells us that he had an angel, which I'm sure was a demon, appear and allegedly reveal to him the 114 chapters of the Holy Koran. You look at Mormonism with its founder, Joseph Smith, and he claimed to have a special relationship with an angel by the name of Morani. And I'm sure he did. It was a demon. And of course, this is pandemic among apostates like like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Joyce Myers and those types of people. And when you even get closer into Orthodox ranks, even with with groups such as the Seventh Day Adventists, they will have their prophetess Ellen G. White that claims special uh, communications with God. But friends, false teachers and apostate Christian teachers inevitably claim spirit, some supernatural revelation to attract a following and presumably Therefore, validate their divine credentials. Jude 8 puts it this way. These men, referring to false teachers, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And it goes on to describe how. And in 2 Peter 2.10, Peter tells us they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Certainly, they despise the authority of the word of God. Daring, self-willed, now catch this, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Now let me explain this. Revile means to blaspheme. Well, how do they do that? Well, the answer is simple. 
You see, as you read the scripture, you'll see that angels were always associated with the giving and the guarding of the law of the word of God. You read about that in Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68, 17 and other passages. But here's the point. With apostates, with false teachers, because of their immorality and the rejection of the lordship of Christ, they blaspheme the holy angels who serve the triune God as guardians of the law. They reject the word of God. They disregard his holy standard revealed in scripture and through their own imaginations and at times through visions that are demonically inspired dreams. They replace the word of God with what Paul calls in First Timothy four doctrines of demons. Not only that, they will routinely pronounce judgment on Satan. Now, this is where we get to the exorcism issue. They're always telling him where to go, always binding him or or somehow casting out some demon. And yet in Jude nine, Jude says not even Michael, the archangel would dare do that. He says he would not dare pronounce against the devil a railing judgment, but said the Lord rebuke you. But these men referring to false teachers revile the things which they do not understand. Now, the point is this, not only because of an overly active imagination, but also because of apostates who, as Jude says, creep into the church unaware. You don't, you don't know they're there. They get within the, the, the Christian community. When they do this, what will happen, and this is how you will mark them out, they will claim some special revelation, and also they will claim power and authority over Satan and demonic spirits. And you'll see this all the time. Friends, those powers were only given to the apostles. And for a short period of time to validate both the message and the messenger. So if you see someone performing exorcisms or or binding Satan or rebuking Satan or writing letters to Satan and his demons, know that they are apostate false teachers. It's ridiculous, folks. In fact, the demons, I'm sure, laugh at them. It's like an ant telling an elephant what to do. In fact, it's like the sons of the seven sons of Sceva. You remember that in Acts 19? You know, they were trying to make money off of casting out demons. They saw the apostles doing it. They think, hey, we can make some bucks doing this. And so they were doing that. And the demons said to them, Jesus, we know. And Paul, we know. But who are you? And the demons attacked them. Remember? They are, as Jude 9 says, reviling the things which they do not understand. By the way, isn't it fascinating? You never see these people commanding holy angels to do anything. Michael, I command you in the name of Jesus to go and deliver so-and-so out of that Al-Qaeda prison camp. You know, I mean, you never hear that type of thing. They're only bossing Satan and the demons around, you know. By the way, you might, you might say, well, why do they do that? I think it's because of ignorance and many times it's because of pride. They want to impress people. Look at me, follow me. But also, folks, many people are ignorant of the Scriptures and they mis- misunderstand the difference between repentance and deliverance. And many of these people are unsaved. Therefore, they do not have the Holy Spirit within them to restrain the flesh. They're having all these problems and they've repented 397 times of the same sin. And they think, well, that's not working. So it must be a demon. And so let's go after the demon. When, in fact, probably the real issue is one of evangelism and genuine repentance. Well, enough of that digression. Jesus gave binding instructions He gives them focus to their mission. 
and clarity of their message validated by supernatural abilities that demonstrated the power and the love of God. But friends, he also thirdly instructed them concerning his method for ministry. Notice, notice in the end of verse eight through verse 10, he says, freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Friends, here's the principle for ministry. Your motivation for ministry is never to be money. Rather, we are to trust God to meet our needs. The Lord is saying, listen, I I have freely given you these supernatural gifts. I've given you this glorious message and the power to enact it. Now, you freely give them away for my glory, not for your gain. I have freely given you all things. I want you to go out without any money. I don't want you to have any money in your money belts. I'll supply your needs. Trust me. I want you to learn to depend upon me. I want you to go out with the bare minimum of food. That's why he says, I don't want you to bring a bag, which would have been a food sack. I'll I'll take care of your meals. I want you to go out with even the bare minimum of clothing. I don't want you to even bring a staff for protection. I'll care for you. Learn to trust me. Folks, it's important to understand that, frankly, their lives and ministries were to be a living indictment against the false teachers who were simply in it for the money and did virtually the opposite of all of these things. Contrast that to the false teachers today who even try to convince naive followers that we're all supposed to be wealthy like me. That's the theme of most televangelists today. False teaching. You go out and try to book some Christian artist to come to your church and you'll find out it costs thousands of dollars to get them and to come and to croon some lyrics that are shallow as water on a plate. Beloved, whenever someone puts a price on their ministry, whenever anyone attaches a dollar amount to their service for Christ, know that they're in it for themselves, not for Christ. Freely you receive, freely give. Now, certainly those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. We read that in 1 Corinthians 9, 14. And it is extremely difficult to shepherd a church or to do many aspects of ministry and to fulfill all of those biblical responsibilities without being paid. You understand that. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. But I want you to notice something. The Lord elaborates even further upon the importance of of trusting him to meet our needs and avoiding any temptation to use ministry as a means for personal gain. Notice verse 11. He says, and into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. And abide there until you go away. In other words, when you go into a place, I want you to find someone who is worthy, which means to be open to the gospel. Someone whose heart is tender to Christ, sympathetic to their missionary enterprise. And I want you to go there and stay there until it's time to leave. That's very interesting. You see, the false teachers of that day and frankly to this day are naturally predisposed 
to upward mobility because they're in it for themselves. And what they would do in that day is they would go into a place. They would find a place. They would stay in that house until they had better accommodations, until they could go into another place and receive more gifts and more benevolence and more praise. The disciples weren't supposed to do that. Dear friends, we need to learn to be content with whatever circumstance we find ourselves. As Paul said in Philippians 4, in verse 11, he learned to be content in whatever circumstance he found himself. This is going to be theirs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to our hearts. Lord, may we live it with great zeal and with great joy. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of you as Savior, and Lord, it is so easy for so many people to deceive themselves into thinking they know Christ when in fact they are far from you. Lord, how I pray that you will overwhelm them with such conviction that they will run immediately to the foot of the cross and cry out for that salvation that can be theirs for the asking. That today will be the day they experience the miracle of the new birth. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts this morning. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.